welcome to The Voices Project. I'm Liz Barker and I'm joined by Becky Webb. And together on this podcast, we talk to people about their experiences of the arts during the COVID-19 coronavirus crisis of 2020. Today we have a double bill of interviews for you. The first is with Sam Avery. Sam is the Artistic Director of the Comedy Trust and a stand-up comedian who was halfway through a national tour when lockdown hit. He talks about the pros and cons of trying to do outreach over the internet during lockdown with the Comedy Trust and some of the more unique lockdown gigs he's been offered. Then we have a brilliant interview Becky had with Alexandra Hofgartner. Alexandra is the Artistic Director of The Decadent Rabbit and a co-producer for the Ministry of Burlesque. She is a multi-skilled practitioner who directs, performs, teaches, produces and more. Becky and Alexandra discuss online cabaret, protecting small venues and the impracticalities of teaching under Covid restrictions. Like everything in this pandemic, the podcast is recorded over remote video conferencing software and as such, during Sam's interview, there was some background noise I was not able to remove. The Voices Project is an open platform for anyone who is involved in any way with the arts to share their thoughts, feelings and experiences of art in the current crisis. If you would like to participate and share your voice, you can find out how to do that by visiting our website, www.marchforthearts.com. Hello and thank you, Sam Avery, for joining us on our lovely podcast. Um, So if people aren't aware of you, which you know, this should be, you know, as it is, uh, you are a, a self-employed uh, stand-up comedian, writer, um, and also artistic director of the Comedy Trust, um, which is a wonderful organization giving a platform uh, through comedy and making people happier. Um, so to sort of just go into that at first, if you want to just Tell us in your own words a little bit about you and what you do and what the Comedy Trust does. Yes, sure, yeah. No, thanks for asking me to come on today. It's good to talk to you. Um, so, yeah, my name's Sam. done stand-up comedy since 2003, so I was, it's kind of 17 years now. Uh, I've been doing it and probably professionally since about 2008, so I've spent about five years faffing about and trying to get good and trying not to shake on stage and stuff. And, um been sort of getting full paid work since 2008 and then um started writing a blog when my kids were born and the blog sort of took off online so that led to a book which which I've had published which which did quite well and then uh I've just in the middle of my second tour based on the back of the Facebook page that I've got um national tour which was dead exciting to do the first tour was so much fun the second tour was great fun and then coronavirus hit in the middle of it uh, so that's all being postponed uh, and we can, we can get, I suppose we can get onto a bit about, about the impact, but um, the Comedy Trust is, is a huge part of what I do, and that's something I've, I've, I've worked with them since 2006. So we do a lot of, our ethos is to create happier, healthier people, and we do that through uh, humour, laughter, and comedy workshops and outreach programmes. So we work with all different groups, mums, uh, young people, uh, older people. Uh, with, I think we work with pretty much everyone except animals, and I think... A couple of times I've joked, I said, we should, we should be working with dogs, you know, like giving them confidence through comedy. And I'm joking, but as this virus gets worse, I'm starting to like, the joke's becoming slightly less. And I'm thinking, maybe that's the safest way to do it in the future. So it all kind of links together, although they, uh, 
the, the kind of I've got the sort of self-employed stand-up me, and then I've got the artistic director me. But they kind of they're very closely linked because it's all it's all comedy in it. I've now just got visions of like dogs, their kind of stand up of like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then just cats being dead, deadpan and be stained, like how they approach <laughs> yeah. it. That's yeah. just now my vision. Looking um, down the nose of the dogs. Oh, the dogs are just hacked. They're just doing crowd pleasing stuff and the cats are doing all this like acetetic, you know, cerebral stuff. Yeah, that, that could be a nice little sketch. <laughs> um, so with that then, in terms of, you know, coronavirus, you're saying like with the shore and things like that, um, how is it? with everything with that we'll mention it it's a pandemic we can we can say the word um how it has affected you um both with your comedy and i suppose with the comedy trust as well like what kind of impact has this had and is potentially going to have on what it is that you do yeah it's had a massive impact and i, I suppose i don't want i've got quite an optimistic nature and i don't i wouldn't like that to clouds or sugarcoat some of the things I'll probably tell you, because the situation's pretty, pretty dire. But I am hopeful that we can get through this and, and you know, stay strong and all the, all the, this is just cliches now, isn't it? But, you know, rebuild around the, the, the way that the world's going to be for the next few months and hopefully still be around when things get back to normal, sort of hopefully next year. But in terms of me stand-up, so the, the second tour I did was called Toddlergeddon, and I wrote it about my kids being toddlers, and it was just a, a two-hour show about that kind of tricky age between the ages of sort of two and when they go to school. Uh, they started school last September. I started the tour in January, so the show already felt, I had to do a little bit at the start, saying, feels like this is like talking about the past a little bit, because my kids aren't toddlers anymore. And then, then, then the pandemic hit, so all the dates have been moved back to the, the autumn, but now they've been moved again to next year. So by the time I get around to finishing these last dates, my kids are going to be probably six. So it's going to feel really weird to have written it. Because I wrote this show kind of when they were two and three, and I'm doing it when the six. But then, so, so that's a strange kind, kind of creative position I'll be in. Financially, uh, I've not had any money from the tour dates that I've done so far, uh, which is about 20 dates in, in 2020. And it's a considerable amount of money, you know, that I've not had. And it's nobody's fault. It's just the fact that all the theatres have played have, have shut temporarily. So um, I, I am one of many people who is owed money. And we can't be expecting them to give us money when they have none themselves. And they've got no new money coming in and new, no bums on seats. And they're just closed. It's difficult to use those buildings for anything other than what they were built for. You can't just put a roller rink in there. Um so, so Starlight Express of, would probably disagree, but <laughs> possibly, yeah, yeah. Maybe they should just play every theatre, <laughs> and then I and then I can get my money and start buying trainers again. So, <laughs> um, so so that's the kind of financial position, and also all, all the other gigs that I was doing. I was I was doing the odd circuit gig in here and there, and they've all they've all been pulled, obviously, because all the clubs are shut. So things are starting to open up again at the moment, and I'm getting. Uh, I was at the zoo on Monday and someone phoned me up actually and said, do you want to do a gig in September in a, in a, uh, in a tent in Wigan? And normally I would have been like, I'm all right, you know. But I was like, yeah. And I was so happy that someone had phoned me because like, it's not like there's loads of gigs at the moment. The fact that someone thought, I'll phone Sam. I, 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 felt, like I, was, I felt like it was 2008 again. I was getting my first paid gigs. It was a real nice moment. And then we went to queue up to see the Lions. So it was a good day. Uh, but then other people are asking me to do gigs in car parks and stuff. And I'm just, I, I've sort of turned a few down because um, I, I, 
someone asked me to do a gig in a cul-de-sac, like on a, on, a, on a little stage they were setting up in a cul-de-sac, and I'm sure it would have been lovely, but I just didn't want to do it. Everyone would have been in the front gardens, and it, I just thought, let someone else do it who wants to do it, because at the moment I'm quite happy waiting for stuff to kind of come back online a bit more normally. And also, it's not a skill I want to improve. I don't want to get really good at cul-de-sac gigs, <laughs> because it's not something that... Well, hopefully it's not a skill that anyone will need past the end of the year. <laughs> um, oh, a book, Sam, I wouldn't book him for your theatre. Get him, get him in a little, uh, yeah, a little, a little one-way street. He's really good at. So, so that's kind of affected the, the stand-up side of it, but also the the comedy trust. When when the pandemic first hit and everything was getting locked down, we, I mean, I, and I still feel like this is a, one of the good things to come out of it. If the, if there is sort of positives to come out of it, is that we've. We've had to be creative to find new ways to to still work with the people that we're important to. So uh, we've been doing a lot of stuff on Zoom, as a lot of people have. Yeah. Um, and I think the novelty of that is totally worn off now for, for participants and for tutors alike. I think the first month or so, it was like, oh, this is weird. They were all in our house. But I think that just being in a room with people is just really powerful. And that's kind of been one of the hooks for a lot of our programs. It's not... It, what we do is important, but it's it's how you do it, and it's getting people in that space every week for the for like six or seven weeks or whatever long the program is is really useful. So to not have that has been kind of devastating to a lot of the participants, um, and also how we go about things and how we plan for the future, which is really difficult because we don't know what the future is. Yeah, and do you feel like because obviously with stand-up comedy and just the value of how humor as the comedy trust is sort of proof of that of, of the value of how comedy can be used um in a way to yeah create healthier happier people and to sustain uh mental health as well and to improve mental health um comedy in general that, that that's the hill i'm happy to die on um but the way as well in which the save live comedy had to become a thing in the fact that comedy and live comedy and stand-up comedy was just completely missed in the whole 1.57 billion. Um, how, what are your thoughts on that? And how did, you know, how do you feel about that? I think uh, there was an interview with uh, Josh Stone on the telly the other week and from her Malibu apartments, with her four staff and six swimming pools, she was saying, people shouldn't be moaning because they've been given all this money. Boris has done a great job. I mean, at that point, I'd tune out when someone says that. Um, but that's the misconception in it, that we've, we've, oh, we're all loaded now. But, you know, the West End are going to get a huge chunk of that. All these huge theatres are going to get a huge chunk of that. So the kind of the theatres that only the top-end shows are playing and the theatres that only the you know, household name comedians are playing, really, like the two, 3,000 seaters. Um, they're gonna, I'm sure they're going to take a big chunk of that. And then it's, they're probably not the ones who are going to be really struggling. It's the little, you know, some of the, some of the best theaters I've played have been three, 400 seats run by a family. You know, all, like their uncle kind of does the cloakroom and the auntie like, cleans the dressing rooms and all that. And it's just wonderful and like the nana brings like some sandwiches in you're like I don't want them they look minging but it's still nice that she's brought them in um, it's those places that I kind of worry for and uh, the fact that a lot of, a lot of comedy is not is it's difficult to kind of it's always been a struggle from uh, a comedy trust point of view to make the case of the arts council that comedy is an art form and I think they've reached 
recently softened the stance on that a little bit because it's seen as this thing that's just um, self-sufficient um, or it's something that is, is, is very marketable. And it can be at the top end, but there's all this other stuff. And I think without the, without the kind of... Um, it's a boot camp, isn't it? It's, certainly the comedy circuit is a boot camp for comedians to learn how to be good or learn how to not be crap or just learn about who they are. You've got to take loads of chances. And one of the things I always say to the new comedians that we work with or anyone I bump into is when you're a new comedian, that's when you need to be trying out all this di- different approaches, different styles, because you're going to find the one that works best for you. And what you don't want to be doing is getting good at a certain style just because you think that's safe and then thinking, oh, actually, this isn't me. So the most successful, most loved comedians, the ones who kind of taken chances and failed and been given opportunity to fail and the place to fail. And that's where I think some of the smaller clubs and the, the tiny theatres are really useful in that they give people an opportunity to do that. And without that, I think you're going to end up with just a really boring set of comedians who are all kind of doing stuff that they know is kind of kind of middle of the ground, middle of the road sort of stuff. And it's, it's going to be a really boring world. And that's not just comedy. That's for, you know, all artistic expression that you need to have stuff that's on the fringes and a bit weird and a bit crap. And sometimes it is a bit crap, but that's how you learn. You go, well, that didn't work. Why didn't it work? Let's try it again slightly differently rather than going, let's do a gig. I was with the gig. Okay, I'll just, uh, I'll go home and there's nothing to do. So I think that it's just, it's the importance of comedy in terms of, offer an opportunity for people to perform, but also the, the benefit it has on audiences is, is huge. And uh, again, for all sorts of artistic, artistic forms that aren't going to be benefited by the, the bailouts. Especially as also like, yeah, the, with stand-up as well, the, the freelance nature of it is, is, you know, exponential kind of thing. But I think mm. the idea of, of failing and that chance to fail that is, I think for me, the value of something like the Comedy Trust where you wouldn't, it's, it's a lot of people that wouldn't necessarily think, oh, I'm going to be a stand-up or, you know, it's sort of with the, with the new moms and, and, and even young people, it's sort of like, how do I get into it? It offers them a, a platform to be able to do that and a platform to gain confidence, to fail and to try and sort of, you know, give them that kind of springboard to do it. So the idea of these kind of organizations like the Comedy Trust, how valuable they are and, how they need to survive and is the comedy trust are you eligible do you know for any of the support have you been able to access any of that kind of thing any of the loans any of the funding any of the grants or no i mean we've not gone for any loans we've got we've got various uh funding bids in so um i mean like i say i'm always optimistic and i think we've got a great team here and we're really resourceful and i think what we do we're always able to find a way to make it fit uh, or, or find a way to make it relevant to the groups that we, we want to work with. Not not to say we'll just see a fund and go, oh yeah, we'll throw comedy in and do that. Because that'd be, a lot of those aren't successful anyway, because people can see through that. But the groups that we work with, finding new creative ways that are also uh, eligible to funders, that we can, we can find ways to actually help these individuals and, and keep these groups together. And I think that, the way that the comedy and humor techniques that we work on with, with individuals, it's just that coping strategy that people end up developing, which is so huge. And I think one of the things that we've struggled with for a while is, is being able to put an actual financial figure on the money that we save the NHS every year through the way that we do. And that's something that we're, we're in the process of trying to do, or we were in the process of trying to get off the ground. And then obviously the pandemic hit 
And now is the time when it would have been really valuable to have that figure because anecdotally, we know that we've kept people sane, kept people out of institutions, we've kept people on the straight and narrow. We've, we've, kept, we've given people confidence to be able to go back into the workforce. It's huge, what, what, the impact that we've had. Um, and we know that and the individuals know that and some funders see that and that's fantastic. For others, it's just being able to put, put that into pounds, shillings and pence would be really valuable. So that's certainly something that we're going to do, uh, hopefully, ASAP. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fact. It's definitely there. I know the Arts Council have done a study on it in terms of the arts in general of how much it's saved the NHS. Is it, I think it's something like £13 a head or something like Around that. Around that, yeah. I'm just trying to pull up the, the statistic that we had. I can't quite find it on my um, on my phone right now. But yeah, there's a there's a huge study that was done by DCMS, uh, so the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, which basically took sports and media and culture and everything and looked at how much money they saved the NHS over a, a 12 month period and it is substantial from people who no longer need to access mental health services to people who don't need to access addiction services to people who are generally just healthier in spirit and body and don't necessarily become more unwell because their lifestyles are improved it's fi financially massive what the arts are doing for that and I think that's a thing often people don't realize is what happens because whether you're sort of like going and engaging with someone like the comedy trust or whether you're doing an amdram production or whether you're doing sunday football or whatever it is that you're sort of engaging with the dcms sector that influences the country in a very very beneficial way that you wouldn't instantly see happen and i think for me that's the thing i'm trying to explain back to people sometimes when someone goes oh you just like put tutus on and dance around stage and it's like well some of us do and we really enjoy i that. mean sam does that's what yeah. i you know <laughs> but, but <laughs> that was my latest like, show yeah <laughs> But, um, and I'm not knocking people who do that, but there's a wide outreach area of what we do. And, and that is really beneficial financially, but also socially. And like that for me is something I'm really trying to explain back to people. Oh, I think, yeah, it's definite. And so with that in mind then, just to sort of finish off with us, if you had the chance, if you were sort of in a room with Oliver and Rishi and others among the DCMS, um, uh, sort of committees and whatnot what would you want to say to them or is there anything that you want to shout that what you think needs to be done or what you'd want to see going forward I mean I probably can't say what I'd like to do the problem with this government now is that they're making the Tory government of the 80s look like you know like, look like the Beatles look, I'm, yeah. yeah I'm looking back going well at least at least they had, you know, at least they had a stance, at least that's it. I mean, once you start saying at least that's it, you know, you've been completely mind warped. But this this current lot don't seem to have any long-term plan. They don't seem to have any belief in what they're doing. They're just trying to do a quick grab on everything. And the fact that they're making so many U-turns speaks volumes for that. If a government is forced to make the odd U-turn, that's really, I think that's, you've got to, applaud them but when every decision they make is shouted down by everyone and then they go oh, we'll do the opposite then no thoughts got into me and uh once i'd stopped swearing I, I suppose to answer your question properly what what i would like to do is show them individual stories because i think that's what what we find the most powerful for most because i can talk to them blue in the face about how great we are and how good we are and what we do is brilliant and of course i'm going to say that but to actually show them the individual individuals who benefited from it and to hear their story from start to finish and 
where they were when they came to us and where they are now or where they've got to in the future. Um, and the fact that, that it's not just that short, sharp shock of, of a quick session or a quick workshop or even a, a seven-week program. It's doing that and then giving them something afterwards to be able to carry on. And I think the power from an individual to be, to be able to say, not just with stand-up, but with anything, I do this rather than I did that. It's, it's ongoing and it's something that it's, it's almost like a life raft in the middle of whatever they're going through that they can see. Even if it's a monthly program that we do, we do a lot of monthly sessions for groups where they come once a month. I don't think once a month is enough. And a lot of them have said they'd like it to be more often, but it's much better than zero. So it's, and, and also make, making that point that, that Liz was just talking about, about the financial and, and social benefits of the, the wider society as well. So that's what I'd like to do, but I'd probably, I'd probably end up swearing a lot and getting asked to leave. <laughs> I think a lot of us would be. Um, so with then, just to quick class, with the Comedy Trust, if people wanted to access the Comedy Trust, is it just uh, visit, mainly visiting the website? Would that be the best place for them to access things? Um, yeah, that's the best place at the moment, thecomedytrust.com, or we've got, we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, so you can find us on there. But the, the, the website's got all the information on, loads of clips, loads of uh, all sorts of um, testimonials and, and contact details as well, so if anyone wants to get in touch, there's not a lot going on right now, but we are starting to come back online now. So uh, it's it's exciting to come back, and um, I'm 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 confident for the future despite what everything holds. Welcome, everyone, to March for the Arts podcast. Uh, I'm here today with Alexandra Hofgartner, who is a performer, producer, activist, teacher, mentor, um, many, many things uh, to many, many people, and also, I suppose to me, a very good friend. So I'm very excited that uh, she has agreed to chat with us today. Um, currently based in Froome near Bristol for all of us that aren't aware or in the northwest that might be like where is that um but yes so welcome Alexandra Hofgartner and um I will stop talking a moment so I will just ask you if you could tell us a bit about you yourself and your journey in the arts as it were <laughs> thanks Thanks. It's it's uh, it's nice to be here. I like it because I can see your face, <laughs> see mine, but nobody else will. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, my my journey. My journey is that the question? Indeed. Yeah. So I started. I started my performance career in my late teens. Professional performance career. Should put it as that. Um, working as a stripper um, all over the world and then I moved on from doing that to um, discovering circus and physical theatre and studying in that and uh, obviously where we met Circomedia mm -hmm. in Bristol and um, yeah that was a really short time ago not not many many not, many, not many ago, ago <laughs> at all um, <laughs> And yeah, so now I guess a jacket of all trades because I I make work, I perform, I produce, I mentor others, I teach, um, I co-produce the Ministry of Burlesque 
I am the artistic director of the Decadent Rabbit Cabaret and uh, working on my new project Sister Edge. So um, yeah, lots, lots of different, lots of different things in there. Many, many facets, as one would say. <laughs> I think it's sort of indicative though of how we kind of have to be almost in the arts. It's that thing of almost like the hustle, as it were, of, you know, but it's a both. It's that thing of having to apply yourself to many different trades, but also being creative. It's what sparks, what sparks joy to Marie Kondo it, but sort of interests you. And for me, it's been interesting watching that journey of, of you from say performer to, to all of these different facets of yourself for, you know, producer and director and, and with your activism as well. Um, it's been great. So with that, because there are so many different things that are very much live and live performance and connecting with other people, um, predominantly on a face-to-face -face basis, how has this pandemic affected you in terms of your work, the, the work that you produce, the shows that you produced, um, and just the things yeah, the projects that you were maybe starting and, and, and developing, sort of how has this affected that? Uh, it's changed everything, obviously. Um, I made notes, actually, because I thought, oh, all these things are going to want to say or remember to say. So if I'm looking down, it's not because I'm not interested. It's just checking that I've said everything <laughs> I want to say. But yeah, one of the things, actually, that you mentioned earlier is that I guess the reason why I've gone on to do all the things I've done is through this uh, drive to find people or co yeah connect with people. So by making work that I was making and going, ha, huh, this is this is um, speaking to people who were then in turn coming back to me and saying, oh, we want to see more, or how can I do that, or how can how can we spread the message further so it feels like everything's happened is in a bit of a natural organic process of just one thing onto the next and it feels like now we are where we are everything has changed so i've obviously lost work i've lost gigs um same as most other <laughs> freelancers um but i think it's also just had a massive knock-on effect of what the what the future is of this so for example right before lockdown i was working on my solo show about bloody time all about menstruation and i felt like i was i'd got to a really good place with that and i had all sorts of um opportunities coming up with that which obviously just came to a grounding halt and I found that at the start of lockdown, I embraced the pause. I embraced having the time and I was really grateful that I was in, a, I lived somewhere, I was safe. Um, you know, people closest to me were, were okay. So sort of from a more smaller bubble perspective, was grateful that we were all safe and okay, um, despite it being a much larger problem. And so I felt like I had the space and time to carry on working on my solo show, just in my little little room. <laughs> uh, 
um, and just to work with that and that was good for a while but I think as time went on and you realise sort of the larger knock-on effect of all of this it became quite debilitating actually and more like a pressure of must must do things must create must stay creative because that's what we're supposed to do um, generally in life as artists yeah um, and other yeah other things so with the ministry of burlesque we were asked by the venue that we normally do the shows in um, whether we wanted to try doing an online show which we did we did do a couple um, and that was a really interesting learning curve as well because that was right at the start of lockdown and that venue were also presenting various um, online versions of regular shows that they have at their venue so things like their comedy nights um, and it was really interesting just to go through that experience of how things translate and what worked and what didn't work and it raised a lot of questions actually it raised a lot of questions particularly in the world of, of burlesque where you're dealing with the subject of bodies and and people's freedom with their bodies and actually how there were a lot of ways online that was more limiting for that so for example um we we put the show up live um on youtube and yeah there were certain things to do with youtube whereas if they picked up if there were sensors that picked up the shape of nipples the video would just be immediately taken down um and yes yeah, so sort of all this complication so actually having to write to performers that we knew who were going to be using um striptease in some way in some element in their act we actually had to say to them um if you're wearing pasties and so nipple covers if you're wearing pasties please make sure they are not nipple shaped like more obscure shapes um and yes it was really interesting this the stuff that, that brought up having to have that mm -hmm. conversation and and i might add that this was also you know women's bodies only <laughs> this wouldn't not have been the same for um if it was if it was somebody <laughs> who identifies as male or male, it, it, it was, yeah, it was, it brought up a lot of stuff to do with that. Mm. You go, wow, we're suddenly taking steps backwards in how people's bodies are policed. And um, yeah, then you've got stuff to do with music licensing. So it was, it was a really interesting um, opportunity to go with, but uh, pros and cons for how cabaret and burlesque particularly works online. I think I, I got lots of ideas for people in like, oh, wow, this is a really great opportunity to how how certain performers could work within their homes or their living rooms. And, and that's great, but not everybody else has the same vision. And ultimately, there are a lot of online shows um, that aren't in a position to pay performers. And so you're then, that's a whole other thing in itself in the value of, of things that go online when there is so much for free um, and how much you can ask of performers um, during this time, particularly when a lot of artists are really wanting to create and make and, you know, the value of what people do. So, yeah, I'm really going on about this now. But it's... No, I, I think it's a really, really 
really great point that you make, especially when it comes to the value. That's something that I think we're thinking about a lot when you do this whole unprecedented 1.57 billion and you're like, well, actually when you break it down the, and what the value of the arts generates for the economy and how it's seen and valued. So yeah, really, really interesting points. Um, so, yeah. I think one of the one of the positives that I've seen from other artists and performers is, uh, and it's not necessarily my own experience, but just observing others is I'm really loving how there are a lot of artists who have really um, set themselves up in this time to be self-sufficient, and I love that. I think that's really inspiring for artists that have gone. You know what? This is this all feels like it's out of my control. So I'm going to control what I can with me as my business as a self-employed person where there's not a lot of support, if any, for some people to go, this is what I need to do. I need to go to my community, to my followers and ask them for support. Um, yeah, so that's, it's also inspiring to see how other people have done it and daunting hmm. others if you're not necessarily. I think as well, it raises a great, Thing about access as well about people that can't ordinarily access venues and how there is a positive to it of, of doing more online and working out how we can do it it's again just making sure that that value is is there when we carry on down this path yeah see when we did the when we did the online the virtual ministry of burlesque shows um we we had people contact us that had never been to our show before, which is normally in Bath. Um, and they were really excited by what, what we were doing. So yeah, it definitely brought something up about people who can't access a venue or access where that show is for whatever reason, being able to see it. I guess it's just, it's a really different experience, isn't it? Mm -hmm. For watching something live and looking at how you can adapt if, if, shows or companies want to so when we did our show online it was um we had all the acts pre-record their numbers in their home and like really asked them to embrace um what their home or where they were living might uh, offer you know rather than just try and do their act straight but how can this be incorporated to make it more unique and more Kind of embrace the fact that we were in lockdown um but what we did is we had the host live um who was engaging with people on the youtube chat so we're really encouraging that because obviously with cabaret it's very much there there's no fourth wall people are you're talking to the audience direct there's always that engagement and so to lose that part of the show felt really sad so we tried to make that work in <laughs> new new ways with the with the magic of the internet um yeah which actually for our cast for our artists particularly those who were hosting it said it was a really um positive experience for them to particularly in lockdown where it was like want want to have this experience of performing and engaging with an audience directly um yeah oh, yeah it's great so i like with things like obviously with shows um i know we we're talking about the decadent rabbit which 
is another cabaret that you uh, are artistic director of and produce. Um, having that booked in and with your teaching and with Sister Edge, which is um, a community, creating that community and with classes, what do you think then going forward, is there a, is there a, a definite plan? Is it a bit more of a, I'm taking it step by step? Um, are, are there plans for shows to continue next year or you know what is there a, a kind of an idea or yeah we still... in terms of uh, classes so with Sister Edge I run I was running aerial and movement classes and obviously we stopped those at the start of lockdown and it's really interesting because obviously over the last month or so things have eased and you know, gyms were able to reopen and most people who were teaching aerial were looking to the sort of sports uh, gym side of things in terms of government guidelines and unfortunately that's really complex for teaching aerial if certainly from my perspective where i don't have my own studio yet um to, to limit how many people, one person per piece of equipment that has to be washed. There's all sorts of complications. So that is still, for me, very much on hold. Although there are circus schools and places that are having to adapt and are making it work as best they can. Um, in terms of the decadent rabbit, yeah, we are still due to do our three night run uh, later this year. And it's a really, difficult and complex conversation to have because all the while all of this year since this pandemic became apparent we're all asking questions artists are asking venues questions venues are looking to the government for guidelines there's all this stuff everybody's kind of wanting some sort of answer when essentially nobody really knows and there's something that as an artist and as a creative person, it I feel exhausted every time somebody says to me, you just got to think creatively. You just got to think about yeah. things outside the box because it's like, that's all I've ever done. That's all I've ever done. And now I just want someone to tell me <laughs> how this might work. Um, and I appreciate that no one does really know, but it's it's interesting to see how other countries are making this work. So I mentor an artist who is actually just gone um, over to Germany and is in a show that is currently in rehearsals. It already existed. It was already booked for a venue to do a three month run. And um, they're in rehearsals now in Germany to rejig how that show can be the same, but without everybody on stage at the same time. So solo acts and things like that. And it's really interesting um, to hear how that is working and interesting to see how different countries are supporting uh, the art sector. The, yeah, it's really varied. And I've been in quite a lot of discussions uh, via Zoom with, with lots of other producers and directors and people that are involved with circus and the arts and just to have this conversation and it is interesting to see how different countries are navigating through but it's 
still feels like we're all scrambling around a little bit, um, trying to make things work, um, trying to see opportunities. Um, but yeah, I think that's a bit of a roller coaster for most people. <laughs> yeah, very, because it, it, it is so, so vague and up and down with the we can perform in time, no, we can't perform, and then we can, and then we you know with bubbles and things. I feel really worried for smaller venues, community theatre company. It's those places that do so much amazing positive work, and it's really worrying when you just think they're the ones that are probably not going to. Well, there's already places closing all the time, and where where I live. There's a, a local theatre here and they crowdfunded. And so when measures were eased, when lockdown measures were eased, they've actually got a small outdoor space as well as their indoor theatre. They've got an outside space as well. It's called the Merlin Theatre. Amazing, amazing venue. And there's so much um, brings really interesting art to a, a Somerset town, uh, which is really important. And... Um, yeah, they crowdfunded and the community raised above and beyond what they were hoping to, to, to be able to reopen, to be able to put shows on for the, for the next few months, you know, for the rest of this year in some capacity. And that's amazing because it's like, if, if elsewhere is not going to help them, the community stepped up and did that. And in a way you think that speaks volume for obviously how the community feels about that venue, but ultimately should they be having to do that in the first place? Well, yeah. yeah. It's the Captain Tom syndrome of it's wonderful that this man did that. I, the value of what he did is unprecedented, but it's that thing of the NHS is not a charity and we need to, the government is responsible and, and you know, we, we pay our taxes for that and that kind of thing. And it's, important that that is recognized so yeah it's great that obviously it's like the community value it shows that it's there it's wanted it's needed communities do do love and want art it's that that's it's just that seems to be questioned by certain certain uh powers that be as it were um so with that what we tend to do is ask people um if you were in a room with the, I call them the trio of doom, the uh, Oliver Dowden, Rishi Sunak and, and Boris himself, like if you were in a room with them or just, you know, the powers that be the government in general, is there something, you know, what would you say or is there something that you would call for or, yeah, you would put out there and be like, this is, this is what we're asking for. This is what you would like to see and or happen? It's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> I think all in all, it's just to stop undervaluing the arts. It's a really yes. simple thing. Uh, I was part of a conversation the other day where I was talking to a producer who makes incredible work um, and I'm going to have written it down here. And she put, it's very humbling to be told that we are non-essential. And that was really, 
because she was she was looking at the opportunities she was desperately trying to go right how do we adapt how do we how do we search in this but yeah that reminds to be told we feel like we're non-essential and i say we all of us everybody hmm. and anybody involved in this industry it's, it's not just about performers which i think is perhaps how some people view it but everybody the stage managers people that make the cost every, everybody and i feel like it's because of the lack of action it, it's really worrying about smaller venues it's really because they do so much for their communities and it's sending out the wrong message mm -hmm. i feel like it can already the arts can already be seen as being elitist and by offering up or, or making this bold claim that all this money is going to be put into the arts that will not trickle down it's totally sending out the wrong message to anybody like the younger generation of people who might want to look at this as a career and and make a difference in the arts and make work that is powerful and life-changing and yeah all these things that the arts has the power to do and it's just like we know that during the lockdown people were turning to the arts for for entertainment and and for that uh, release and to feel connected to something they were watching programs documentaries reading books reading magazines all this stuff and it's like that is our industry and it's also connecting like you're saying with the live show that live element of the cabaret that you did um yeah that that connection of of live of, of one to be together i think yeah that's a i think that's a that's a good thing to say and a very almost like you know uh non angry and aggressive because normally people have to stop themselves saying if i was in a room with them <laughs> Of course I'm angry, of course I am. I feel like I've spent so much time being angry about it, but it's, there's also a level of grief. Yes, yeah. And mourning because, yeah, well, we know it's just something has to be done and it, it, it's, yeah, something being so undervalued is just destroying destroying so many people's lives in so many ways as well it's not just people in show it's all the facets to it yeah that's the thing there's so many facets to it it's so in like as a sector it's it's huge and it's detailed and it's nuanced and there's it's vast unbelievably vast um there's a lot of talk around um, the West End in London and, and some of the major shows going, well, if they can't do it there, then they'll find they'll go somewhere else. So, and it's like, obviously, that's a big mainstream part of, of this industry in, in this country. But having toured and having seen the ripple effect of the arts in towns, in villages, all the places it's it's worrying yeah it's like that place needs that it, ne it needs that to to learn of other people's stories and experiences and cultures like that's 
that's how we become better people, isn't it? When you're not yeah. just stuck in this bubble of this is all I know. It's yeah. exciting. It's adventurous, and yeah, to have to not have that is is yeah. There's mourning. There's grief. Yeah. Well, thank you, Alexandra Hofgartner, um, for talking about your experiences. Um, if people if people want to know more about you um, and find out about you, obviously I have to mention this because I I know all the information. But if there are people that are like, she's a fascinating woman, I want to know more. Um, where can people find you? Um, well, I mean, not necessarily personally. I'm not saying give us your address, <laughs> but um, say online. Um, things like that if, if there's yeah where's your online presence yeah well one of the things I did in lockdown even though I'm far too late for it well not too late but late to the game I'm, I, I set up Instagram so I'm still baby, baby steps of that but that is generally where I am really enjoying connecting with people so yeah finding me on Instagram at uh, Alexandra underscore Hofgartner uh, or you can see more of my work on my website www.alexandrahofgartner.com Thank you for listening to The Voices Project. This podcast is produced by March for the Arts. The Voices Project is an open platform for anyone who is involved in any way with the arts to share their thoughts, feelings and experiences of art in the current crisis. If you would like to participate and share your voice, you can find out how to do that by visiting our website, www.marchfortheartscom If you have enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to give us a review, subscribe or share with a friend. 